Um, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We are um, taking a brief pause from our study through the book of Luke, and we're going to be uh, examining the passage in uh, the letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me read those to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the treasure that is the book of Ephesians and the way it so clearly um, declares to us the glory and the privilege that we participate in uh, by being in Christ, Lord. And as we uh, read this passage, as we examine its contents, I just pray that you would help us to understand it in a crystal clear way, the, the way it declares to us our, our uh, blessings, our privileges as children of God, and also the implications of that for the way we are to live in this world. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak through me this evening and that you would um, enliven our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to say to us today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, good evening. My name is uh, Raymond, as most of you know. Um, I have served as one of the community group leaders here at Shorebreak Church for several, several years with David. Shashinkin, my good friend, um, and uh, I wasn't expecting to be back up here this soon. I preached last Sunday, but uh, Leo uh, is feeling a bit under the weather, uh, just something that came upon him in the last few days, so I'll be praying for him. Uh, in fact, I don't think I mentioned that in my prayer, so let me, let me pray for that right now. <laughs> Lord, I, I just want to lift up Leo to you, and yeah. Thank you that uh, we have such a wonderful, godly pastor in this church. and um, I just pray that you would expedite his uh, recovery from this illness, but I just pray that it would be uh, a blessing to him, actually, that it would be a time of rest, a time of fellowship with you, a time of uh, refreshments, Lord, and a time when he can just pray and seek you for, for things that you were processing with him in the season of his life, Lord. And uh, yeah, thank you again for who he is and everything he has done for this church. And I just pray that um, uh, you would just help us as we move forward as a church to come alongside him in any way that we can. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I think it was about a year ago, year and a half ago, that we concluded a um, series through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I really appreciated Leo's approach to that text, and, and I would encourage everyone to go back. If you weren't here, if you missed any messages, you can go back online and listen to those on the podcast or on the YouTube channel. 
Um, however, one of the glorious things about Scripture is that it is inexhaustible. Like, we went through it a year ago, and there's just so much more. Leo preaches a lot longer than, than I would preach, but still in the time he preaches, it wasn't enough time to unpack all of the glorious realities that are contained in the book of Ephesians. So I think some of what I say might be uh, re-traveling uh, re over ground that we covered already. But some uh, are things that, just for time's sake, we maybe didn't have time to go into when we went through Ephesians last time. So I hope uh, you're edified by this message as I was uh, in putting it together. Uh, but if you read through the book of Ephesians in one sitting, you will quickly discover uh, that this letter is largely concerned with the issue of identity. Uh, Paul is trying to ingrain in the minds of his readers a proper self-understanding uh, so that they will fulfill their true purposes in this world with the end goal being their joy. And the purpose for which his audience was created and which uh, all worshipers of Christ were created is uh, to live a certain way of life that is dedicated, uh, or sorry, as rather dictated by their identity in Christ. Um, that way of life explains what worship is. In Ephesians, more than in any other of his letters, Paul uses the metaphor of walking to explain the way of life that God is prescribing for Christians uh, and that that way of life should become second nature. Um, Paul talks about uh, the walk of the Christian life uh, and contrasts that with the walk that probably characterized most of his readers' lives before they became Christians. Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul reminds his audience that they once walked following the course of this world. That's in verse 2. Later in the same chapter, he tells them uh, how they should walk. In chapter 4, he urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called uh, in Christ. And that's in verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, later in chapter 4, he admonishes them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's verse 17. And of course, uh, in that time and in that place in the world, Gentiles simultaneously meant uh, non-Jewish person, but it also meant uncivilized pagan. Those two things just went hand in hand if you were a Gentile. Um, in chapter 5, Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. That's in verse 2. And later in 5, Paul pleads with them to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Um, the point that Paul wants to emphasize in this letter is that a Christian's behavior doesn't dictate his or her identity, but a Christian's identity is meant to dictate his or her behavior. Uh, we see no clearer example of this than in Ephesians 5 when Paul uses the metaphor of light and darkness to contrast a virtuous life united with, uh, with Christ with an evil life apart from Christ. He says in 5.8, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So it's possible to be a child of virtue um, and not behave in a virtuous manner. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't have to just tell them to behave in this way. It would just be automatic. Uh, but they are children of virtue regardless of their obedience. That's what, what Paul's saying to his readers. And we're going to hit that, that point pretty heavily this evening. Um, let's go to the text. Now, we see in verse 1, um, Paul says, well, he addresses his letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, the word saint, it's just so common in the Western world um, that was founded upon Christian civilization. But the concept um, of saint as sort of an honorific title given to certain people is actually a made-up concept that does not exist in New Testament Christianity. The English word saint, and uh, bear with me on this one, it's a little, going to be a little bit of a windy road, but, but the English word saint comes from the Latin word sanctus, okay? But Ephesians was originally written in Greek. Uh, and the Greek word behind saint in this text is hagios. And uh, that word simply means holy. Um, it's the same word used whenever you see Holy Spirit written in the New Testament. It's hagios spirit. Hagios and whatever the Greek word for spirit is which I didn't look up, sorry. And we're going to see uh, that the recipients of this letter aren't designated as holy because of any merit of their own. And we often think of people who are called saints as being people who exemplify a higher degree of moral excellence than the average person. But all Christians are saints or holy. Um, and of course... Uh, if the word saint already signified virtue on the part of uh, the person who was called by that title, then Paul wouldn't have felt it necessary to specify that the people that he was addressing in this letter were also, in addition to being holy, they were faithful in Christ Jesus. They had that reputation. Um, they, they were already holy regardless of whether they were faithful, and these addressees also happened to be faithful. If you're a Christian here this evening, I just want to encourage you, if you're struggling in any area of your life, uh, whether, whether you're thriving or whether you're failing in your faithfulness to God, if you belong to Jesus, you are holy, which means he has set you apart for himself. It doesn't matter how many times you've committed sexual immorality. Uh, it doesn't matter how many times you've gotten drunk or how many times you've lied. Uh, all sins. Uh, these are all sins that were prominent uh, in the um, people group that Paul was addressing in this letter. But your identity, if you are the weakest Christian in this room or if you are the strongest Christian in this room, is that you are holy. Um, but uh, when God set us apart as holy, he set us apart for a distinct purpose in this world. And that purpose is that we live lives of godliness in this world. Uh, and we have to hold these two ideas together, which we often aren't good at doing. We have to hold the fact that we are holy regardless of our behavior and the fact that we are called to a high standard of behavior. Um, Christians have always struggled to balance the two. 
we wonder how can God command us uh, to live righteous lives but call us holy regardless of how we live our lives. Um, some teachers throughout the centuries have dealt with this complex issue by claiming that God actually doesn't truly expect humans uh, to strive to live up to the example that was set for us by Jesus. Uh, others acknowledge that uh, we are called to a high standard but wrongly believe uh, that Christians who are struggling aren't holy. Um, let me explain. Let me see if I can help us uh, with this issue by using an analogy. Um, this is an analogy that has helped me in the last couple of years. Uh, suppose I'm a police officer, and so I've gone through the police academy. You know, I've taken all the training, all the tests, gone, gone through all the drills, and I've been deputized as a law enforcement officer. And suppose one day on my shift, uh, a woman runs up to my police car frantically and she says, Officer, uh, that man over there snatched my purse and he ran in that direction. Go get him. What if I were to say, Lady, calm down. I'm enjoying my donuts and my coffee. Um, I will go uh, and chase after that man as soon as I'm finished with my uh, coffee and donuts that I'm enjoying. I don't want them to get cold and spoil. Um, now, in that instance, I think we would all agree that I am not acting like a police officer. But that does not change the reality that I am a police officer. I have the badge. I have the gun. I've been deputized. I have the legal authority to make arrests. I am a police officer, even if I'm not behaving that way. And so um, that's the way it is actually with holiness. Uh, our behavior doesn't dictate our identity, but our identity is meant to dictate our behavior. So I, if, if I'm a police officer and I behave in that manner, that is a wrong way to behave because my identity as a police officer is meant to dictate how I act in that scenario. But again, regardless, I'm still a police officer. But many Christians struggle with the idea that God has given us this secure identity and still places expectations on how we are to live. Uh, one of the reasons we struggle uh, to comprehend this, I think, is that we fail to understand a truth behind a concept mentioned uh, in verse 2. And here Paul says, uh, this is a very simple declaration, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the concept we struggle with is this concept of grace. Um, the most succinct and helpful definition for grace that the church has devised over the centuries is that grace is unmerited favor. When we use the word, uh, we are typically speaking of the fact that uh, a Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven and who has been fully accepted into the family of God. And we, uh, we weren't accepted because of anything we did to earn that honor, and we rightly understand that. We are part of God's family because of the love that he chose to bestow upon us. Uh, that's true, but where we go astray in our definition of grace is in thinking that the concept is contrary to any obligations that we might receive from God. Um, now, about a year ago, I read a book from a Bible scholar named William Barclay, and he has very helpfully cataloged a handful of ideas that 
come to our modern minds when we think about race. And many of these ideas are quite biblical that we think when, when we think about grace. Um, but he also points out another idea regarding grace that uh, today's Christians often neglect, but that the Bible writers have equally in mind. So Barclay identifies several of what he calls perfections of grace that we affirm as believers. Uh, one uh, perfection of grace is that it is super abundant. And that is, it's not minimal, and it's not stingy, and it's even, when it comes to God's grace, unending. And this is clearly an accurate portrayal of one of the concepts Paul had in mind when he used the word grace. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1 say, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Another perfection of grace that uh, Barclay identifies is this idea of incongruity. Incongruity. And this perfection has to do with the relationship uh, between the giver of grace and the recipient. Uh, This is when the giver of the gift and even the gift itself is so much more honorable and the gift is of such so much higher value uh, than this unworthy recipient. And again, Paul likely had this in mind when he talked about grace, and we all would rightly affirm that. Uh, But a third uh, condition we associate with grace that is contrary to what the Bible writers and certainly Paul had in mind uh, is this condition called, or that Barclay identifies as non-circularity. And non-circularity is when grace is given with no expectations placed on the recipient. In fact, we are often prone to thinking that if you give someone grace or give someone a gift, and if you place an expectation on how they ought to respond after you've given them that gift or that grace, then your grace is not truly grace. That's because in our Western understanding, the word free is an unspoken adjective that we think in our minds comes before the word grace. And Paul doesn't see grace as non-circular, as something to be given without any expectations of the recipient. Again, we, uh, if we think that God gives us his grace without expecting us to live godly lives in gratitude for that grace, we are just simply wrong about that. Uh, but the reason that God does place expectations on us is that one of the perfections of his grace is the perfection of efficacy, which is a fancy way of saying that God's grace empowers us to live virtuous and godly lives. He doesn't say to us, go start living the way Jesus lived without offering us any help to do so. Um, He gives us the ability to do so. In Ephesians uh, 2, verses 4 to 10, Uh, we see that one of the many examples in which Paul notes the fact that believers are accepted by God in spite of their sinfulness, but for the purpose of godliness. Uh, That passage says, um, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, he says, uh, you were not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And, um, sorry. Uh, Paul wrote about this topic with ease. This topic of the fact that God, God's grace is given to Christians without regard to their virtue, to empower their virtue. And I'm repeating myself, but I'm trying to drive this home. Uh, he was able to write, Paul was, with such clarity about this because of his own testimony. Before, uh, before he knew that Jesus was God, Paul's mission was to terrorize Christians and even put them to death. He often wrote about the fact that he was graciously saved despite being totally undeserving of salvation and given a mission that he was obligated to fulfill, to bring the message of the gospel to as many people as would listen. In Ephesians uh, 3, 4, sorry, Ephesians 3, 7, and 8, Paul says, actually, I think I might have written that down wrong, but the, uh, the chapter reference, but um, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the, by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So for Paul, uh, from Paul's other writings, we see that even in his own era, people were twisting his words to suggest that grace was contrary to obligation, and he was very quick to correct that notion. People who preach the idea that grace liberates Christians from obligation uh, think that they are doing the church a favor. They think that they are rescuing people from undue pressure, stress, anxiety, and an unhealthy fear of God. Um, but by promoting such an idea, they are actually robbing the church of joy. Yes, we should be filled with joy over the fact that we are no longer condemned because of our sins, but we should also celebrate the fact that in Christ, we are no longer slaves to our sins. Sin is destructive, and we've all experienced that. And yes, there are some sins in our own lives that we might currently be blind to, but the sins that we are aware of that tend to resurface, we're devastated by those. The fact that there is hope that it, even in this life we can gain mastery over those things by God's grace is a source of motivation. And I think uh, that this hope, uh, it's this hope that Paul has in mind in verse 4 uh, of chapter 1, which says about God, uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, I believe that uh, 
that this is talking about God's refinement of his people, whereby he removes their character defect in the process of making them more like Jesus, otherwise known as sanctification. We see the word blameless uh, used this way several times in Paul's writing. In Philippians 2, Paul exhorts his audience uh, to, quote, be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's verse 15. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said that he himself set an example that was, quote, holy and righteous and blameless for the letter's recipients. That's in chapter 2, verse 10 of that letter. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul said that potential church leaders should, should serve, uh, quote, serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That's verse 10 of 1 Timothy 3. So, of course, when it comes to our acceptance by God, we are symbolically blameless because Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf. Um, but God also perfects the character of his people so that um, we can live lives of virtue in harmony with him, and that is God's gift to you. Um, it's not something uh, to lament. It, this is something actually to celebrate. It's for our joy. Uh, the ability to live godly lives is as much a gift as the forgiveness of our sins. However, if you thought that God's acceptance of you depended on your godliness, uh, that would be a wrong motivation to live lives of godliness. That motivation would produce anxiety and depression when you fail and pride when you succeed. Either way, it would lead to an, an obsessive self-focus rather than the life of community that God wants us to live. Maybe it's with that in mind, I think, that Paul pivots back to how secure his audience is in Christ because of his work apart from anything they do. Uh, and I'm just going to go back and read verse 3 and then through 5 of Ephesians 1. And that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And, of course, notice the fact that God predestined us, and whenever those words come up in Christian circles, uh, the fact that he chose us and predestined us, it often, those words often cause uh, division. And I think that's a shame because Paul meant those words to be a source of encouragement and of comfort. They imply that although God knew everything about you before you were born, every mistake that you would make, every instance of disloyalty to him, he chose you. His love for you doesn't depend on your behavior. The unmerited nature of God's acceptance for this letter's recipients and for us is highlighted by a term uh, in verse, uh, verse 5 whose meaning can be a bit lost on us as modern readers. Um, actually, verses 4 and 5 say, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through Jesus Christ. Um, in our modern Western context, when we hear the word adoption, we think of an adult adopting a child for the benefit of that child. Uh, maybe the child, uh, maybe their parents died in a tragic accident, or maybe they were taken out of an abusive home and someone adopted that child for that child's welfare and blessing. Uh, but this is not what ad adoption signifies in the first century Greco-Roman context. Um, in fact, in this context, uh, the concept of adoption was somewhat selfish because it was an adult, an adult adopting another adult for his own benefit. Um, for example, let's say someone was wealthy but childless, but they wanted someone uh, who they would ensure would carry on, uh, would take care of their estate and carry on the family name in an honorable and, an, and in a dignified way. Or that wealthy person, that prominent person, might have children, but all of their children are um, dishonorable, disreputable people who they do not want to carry on their family name, and be the caretaker of their estate. So in that instance, what the person would do was adopt someone who had a great reputation, who was an honorable, dignified, and trustworthy person, and they would then make that person the heir of their estate. And they would be proud to call that person my son, for example. Before becoming Christians, however, interestingly, uh, the recipients of Ephesians were not the kinds of people who would have been adopted in that culture. And that's clear from uh, chapters 4 and 5. In 4, verse 22, Paul says, uh, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then... In the rest of chapter 4 and in chapter 5, uh, Paul explains what their former manner of life would have looked like. Uh, this letter's recipients included, included former liars. That's in chapter 4, verse 25. It included people who were hateful and malicious, chapter 4, verse 31. It included people who were sexually immoral. That's in 5.3. And they were drunkards. That's in 5.18. And the list goes on. And so this is not exactly uh, the most exemplary group of people who anyone would just be uh, tripping over themselves to adopt and to uh, bestow their riches and inheritance to. But these are the very people that God has adopted. He didn't adopt them because of their identity. He adopted them into a new identity as holy people which led them to their faithful behavior that Paul talks about early in uh, chapter 1. And this is a, a Christian cliche, but it's, but it's really true. Uh, God does love us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way, and I thank him for that. Um, if you're stuck in sin, if you're truly a Christian, that means you're stuck in misery. Because those who God has taken into his family, he has also transformed and given new desire. So if, if you believe the lie that God doesn't require his people to live godly lives, 
that's probably the reason you're stuck in misery. You don't understand the inheritance you have and the right you have as Christians. Uh, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you don't believe that God requires us to be godly, you likely don't understand he has empowered us to live that way. And so my admonishment, my admonishment to you this evening is very simple. Repent. Change your mind and receive God's help to live according to the identity that he has given you. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much that you have chosen us and adopted us regardless of our past mistakes, our past rebellion against you, and that our identity as your children is secure. Nothing we did earned it, and nothing we can do sustains it. It is only by your love and by your grace, Lord. But I thank you also, Lord, that along with that identity, you give us power to overcome our sinful habits, our sinful tendencies, and to live lives of joy and harmony with one another. Sin disrupts joy and harmony with one another. And we so desperately desire to be free of all such um, hindrances, Lord. And so I just pray that we would every day gaze upon the beauty of Christ, gaze upon his example, and that we would, as your word says, be transformed from one glory to the next. Um, and that when we stumble, when we fail, we wouldn't wallow in that sin, and we wouldn't uh, have a pity party, but that we would just repent, thank you for your forgiveness, and continue moving forward and walking forward in our true identity as your children that you empower us to walk in, Lord. Again, thank you so much for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write this brilliant letter, this encouraging letter, and I pray that we would uh, if we haven't read it in a long time, I pray that we would be inspired to read it, reread it, and uh, rejoice in all of the spiritual blessings that you have granted to us. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.